I'm so thankful to be with you, God's people, again uh, this week. Last week, I really enjoy coming and celebrating the resurrection of our Savior. And as I was considering this week, the, the, almost the opportunity to celebrate uh, Resurrection Sunday again, it was, it was kind of an exciting uh, thought process in my mind. I think a lot of times we think about Christmas and say, I'll take Christmas twice, right? We'll, 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 we'll celebrate Christmas again next week or maybe the week after, the week after that. There's a lot of things, I think, on this earth that have brought us to love and fall in love with Christmas. But the thing that brings us to fall in love with Easter is Christ himself. And uh, the idea of celebrating Easter twice was, uh, was kind of exciting to me. Not that he needs to do it twice, um, but it, it just brought a smile to my face as I considered the worship this morning of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. That was a free side, free before you. But as we spend time worshiping this morning through song, through prayer, through the reading of God's Word, I want to, uh, I just want to take a moment to remember um, that people come to services like this, um, some happy, some people come broken, some are hurting, some are um, indifferent, uh, some are at a, uh, at a point in their life where uh, a change must be made. And so I, I, I hope and I pray that when you come to uh, Sunday morning services, that you are praying for your fellow brothers and sisters, that you're also praying for those who would come seeking to know the risen Savior that we appreciate here each week. And so with that, I, I just want to take some time to pray, to pray openly for uh, the sick, to pray for those who are hurting, to pray for those uh, who are healing to pray for those who are in joy, that we might celebrate with them, and also to pray for those who need the Lord, that they would come to a saving understanding through His Spirit. Let's pray this morning. Dear Father, we open Your Word this morning with expectation that You would deliver to us what You have for us today, that You would remind us, Lord God, of Your goodness and Your grace even amidst our trials, that, Lord, when struggles come, we are reminded that it's our striving that oftentimes is in the way, that we can't do this on our own, that we can't accomplish what your son came to accomplish on our own, and that, Lord, ultimately we need you. And I, I pray that it's that message, that truth that we know deep in our hearts and that we do believe deep in our hearts, Lord, that needs to be proclaimed to those around us. That, Lord, we would invite people into your family, not just a church. That we would help people to know you. We'd help our family to know you, our children to know you, our brothers and sisters to know you. We'd help our neighbors to know you, and we would draw them to you and not just here to this building or to an idea, but instead to the one who came. He lived a perfect life. He allowed himself, Lord, to take the cup that you gave him, to be nailed upon a cross, and to die ultimately for the sins of this world. And Lord, not only that, but the defeat of sin through his resurrection on the th third day, Lord, is a reminder to us that his power and authority is true and is ultimate. That the only thing guaranteed on this earth is our deaths. And that, Lord, the only answer to our deaths is your son, Jesus. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that your word is truth, that it is full of this hope. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to become more acquainted with your scriptures, that we might proclaim that message to those who need it. And so, Lord, we know that people today here are hurting. We know that there are people today here that are happy and come here praising you for what you've done. And we know, Lord God, that across your church, across the world, Lord, that that is just an even more wide, broad picture, Lord, of the pain, the suffering and joy also of your church. And so, Lord, help us that when we come to praise you, that we also come knowing that the body is in many different types of need that we might pray for them, that we might also extend words of encouragement and love, that we might spur one another on to good works as your word tells us, that you might be glorified ultimately, that people would be added to your kingdom daily, not by our hands, but by the Spirit's work in the lives of people who need you. We pray this, Lord, in your precious and holy name. Amen. As we consider the state of the world today, many conversations I've had with folks uh, recently have declared a sense of definite division between God and creation. And maybe they haven't said that word for word, but whether Christian or not, rich or poor, I've had conversations about the negative state of the world that we're living in. Some people believe that we are nearer to the end times than others, but at least we are one day closer nonetheless. And that being said, as the gap seemingly widens between the Word and the world, in the hearts and minds of believers specifically, it would then seem that the urgency and clarity of God's call on each of us would also in turn elevate. The good news in all of this is that we're promised victory, right? We're promised victory through Jesus Christ, and in the face of future suffering, perseverance will be produced. It's here, though, that we all may also may fall prey to complacency. And I would contend that though we may see greater divide between the Word and the world, the church must be aware and be on guard against the things that would appear sensible and understandable by the world's standards. And that they may just be that, sensible and understandable. They might be. There are many things in the world today that make a lot of sense. There's a lot of things that our society does that seem sensible and understandable. However, this is merely in the context of a tangible, physical world. And I'm certainly probably preaching to the choir here this morning that God offers us, offers you through His Son, Jesus Christ, something that's not of this world. It's something that's eternal. Something that doesn't end on earth. He's promised each one of us a place in heaven. That's a beautiful promise, something that I look forward to, something that I enjoy. But how often is that the case that I'm considering what is to come and not as what in front of me? If that's the case, what is our framework? What is your framework for the time that we have left here on this earth? If we know that death is certain, if we know that Jesus Christ has called us to save 
the people around us? What do we do? What do we use for the framework that we have for the time that we have left around us? John, in his gospel, spent a significant amount more time having a conversation recording the Last Supper, the time around the Last Supper. And I know we're rewinding a little bit. You guys thought we were through Easter. But John 17, before they depart to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is recorded as praying what we now call the high priestly prayer. And in verses 14 through 19, Jesus said this in prayer to God. He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth." We are called as believers, we are called as followers of Christ to be sanctified in truth. And though the wonderful work of our Savior on the cross has broken the power of sin, the presence of sin still remains. And many of us make it our pursuit to be transformed in our personal lives through this process of sanctification, to be sanctified in truth. And so we take this personally and we work through this to try to become more sanctified in our life, to become more like Christ. And that is right and good. However, Christ also didn't remove us from this world. What Christ did, he said, I do not ask you to remove them from the world, but to save them from the evil one. Christ left us here for a reason beyond our personal sanctification. And so while John calls us to have life, as were his words in the final verses of this book in John 20, Matthew closes out his gospel by calling us also to give life, to have life in Jesus and to give life by Jesus, to go, to make disciples. And this is what follows the resurrection in the account of Matthew. That Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is what he calls us to in response to what he's done for us. There's no better place for missions emphasis than following the act that made us all missionaries. And maybe we're not all foreign missionaries, but men and women who join God in his work here on the earth Men and women who have repented and put God's will for their lives first, we're missionaries. And we have an impact to make here on this earth. Those who through obedience to God's call enter into God's mission to save his people in this world. In verse 15, John plainly states, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so as we consider our placement, In this ever-deteriorating world, we must understand that because we have life by the Word, that we were also called to give life by the Word. And so I want to take some time this morning to consider evangelistic pursuit. 
evangelistic pursuit. A lot of times we don't talk explicitly about evangelism from the pulpit. Um, Some of us, I think, probably think of evangelism as someone else's job, something for somebody else to do. I had a conversation with someone last week. Well, maybe that's uh, for somebody who's hired to do it. And I think we get that mixed up when we have this conversation about missionaries. And I do believe there's a set-apart place for missionaries in this world, for people who go to a different cultural context, and they celebrate what God has done for them and through them in that cultural context. But we're also called to do these same things here amongst our neighbors. Much like we are called to conform our lives to the Word, we are also called to conform our evangelistic pursuit to the Word and not the world. And so my question is, have we allowed things in this world that are sensible and understandable to enter into how we evangelize the world around us? Have our personal and cultural preferences watered down evangelism? My wife's aunt and uncle just completed their dream of circumnavigating the world on a sailboat. I don't know if anybody that really is somebody else's jive here, but they set sail from Maryland on their 45-foot sailboat in November of 2019. Uh, It was a little bit more than a three-hour tour. It's been over two years. Over two years, and they are on their way back up to Maryland. They left from Maryland, so they've, they've done the circumnavigation, and they're on their way back up uh, the East Coast to finish off their trip. That doesn't sound appealing to me, the idea of being in a boat for, uh, for two years. And, and I'm a people person. I like, I like to have people around. I think that's part of it. Um, but ultimately, I think my concern with the idea of being on a, a boat that long is pragmatic more than social, right? I wouldn't want to be that far out in the ocean for fear that that boat would somehow spring a leak, that it would start to take on water. Now, Dave Whitaker, I, I'll take a short ride with Dave Whitaker on Cross Lake any time, no problem. That, that's pretty, you're, you're not that far from the shore, right? I mean, that's, that's comfortable, But the idea of getting out in a boat, no matter how big it is, out in the middle of the ocean with 20-foot swells is a risk that I don't want to take. Boats, however, are made to be in the water. Jess's uncle Dan first set his eyes on what would be the boat that would take him around the world that was in dry dock. He saw it, he looked at it, he said, that's the one. That's the one that's going to be my boat. It's going to take me across the waters of this earth. And what might be okay to be temporary, to be in dry dock temporarily, is not what the ship was meant for. The ship is meant to be in the water, right? And ships, well, I guess they're meant to be on the water, right? Ships are meant to be on the water, not in the water, because if a ship is in the water, it's not really a ship. It's more of a submarine, and at that point, I... I don't think that qualifies. The solution isn't to dry dock the boat, though. The solution isn't to put it at the marina and tie it up on the side. It's meant to be sailed. And so how do we set sail on a sea of evangelism without getting soggy or, in the worst case, sunk? When the world around us is water and we are in the boat of the Word, how do we keep from getting sunk? And so what I want to do today is I want to take a few places, look at a few places where Christians 
may allow, not, I'm not talking explicitly that all of you do this, but there are places where Christians may allow the world, what the world deems to be sensible and understandable uh, amounts of water to get into our gospel work. And I want to look at that this morning. So the first one I want to look at is I want us to consider first the concept of choice. Evangelism is not a choice if you trust in Christ for salvation. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, makes uh, this mention in his first letter to Timothy that Christ came into this world and he left us in this world to save sinners. It's found in 1 Timothy 1.15. And in response to that, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he gives this instruction. Paul says to Timothy, first of all, then I urge that supplications prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We hear those words there again, sanctify them in truth. I give them the word which is truth. And then here it says, He desires all who become saved to come to a knowledge of the truth. What concerns me is that according to a 2018 Barna study, 47% of millennials, though they believe that being a witness is important, at the same time they also believe that sharing your personal beliefs with someone in hopes that they would one day share the same faith that you share is categorically wrong. What's even more disconcerting is that nearly 25% of all generational categories agreed with that same sentiment, our elders being the lowest category with about 19%. That we don't believe that sharing our personal belief with someone in hopes that they will one day share that same hope, they believe that is wrong. What I'm afraid of is that this type of conflict within the hearts of believers, within the hearts of the church, will most certainly grow in the coming generations if we don't address it today. Individualism and personal freedoms are celebrated in today's culture. And while God created each one of you to be unique and wonderful and different, He did those for His purpose. He created us to be special and unique for His purposes. And so we need to seek out His purpose in our lives and not just our own. David Kinnaman, the president of Barna, concluded that study saying, cultivating deep, resilient Christian conviction is difficult in a world of you do you. And don't criticize anyone's choices and emotivism, the feelings first priority that our culture makes a way of life. As much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved, but reminding ourselves that this stuff matters, that the Bible is trustworthy, and that Jesus changes everything. We get to choose a lot of things in our life, right? We get to choose where we're going to live. Some of you have made moves recently. We're glad to have you back. Some Some people have left and gone to other areas, right? We get to choose that. We get to choose who we hang out with. Do I want to hang out with so-and-so today? Do I want to have so-and-so over for supper? Uh, We get to choose that. Maybe somebody asked you over for supper and you got to say no, whatever. Whoever you want to hang out with, that's your choice. We get to do uh, whatever we want for a job, right? We get to choose what we want to do. 
And we get to be who we want to be in that context. Many of you know that I used to work in IT. I used to work with computers. Primarily, my work surrounded PCs and not Macs. And so I spent a lot of time working with Microsoft software. My question is, is did you know that Microsoft has evangelists? Microsoft evangelists. And I'm serious. This is an actual job title. Microsoft evangelists. You can look it up online. I promise you. It's on their website. I went and looked it up. They really have an evangelism arm in their corporate structure because they believe what they're sharing in the software world is good news. I had heard of this before, and so I wanted to see what they listed officially, and their website says, evangelists engage with technical audiences to influence the adoption of Microsoft platforms and tools by educating, enabling, and exciting them to use Microsoft products and services, evangelists get to turn audiences into advocates within their communities. Business cards and everything. Evangelists of Microsoft insert software platform here. Right? I could choose to be a Microsoft evangelist. You could choose to be a Microsoft evangelist if you want to. You're welcome to do that. I don't know if any of you really are uh, into Microsoft software, but maybe that's what you want to do. But ultimately, what Microsoft shares and what is shared by believers of Jesus Christ, what Microsoft shares isn't the good news. It might be okay news, especially if you are in need of some specific software. But ultimately, it's a sales pitch. It's an opinion for what software your company should use. True evangelism, however, is the best news. It's the best news that anyone could ever hear. And the question is, is do you believe that? We don't have to believe that Microsoft has it figured out. We can choose a different software. We can choose a different computer. But we don't get to choose that when it comes to evangelism. Do you believe that what God has written in his word is the best news? That you'll ever hear is the best news that anyone else can ever hear and that Jesus ultimately changes everything. If so, the truth of love in Christ should compel us to action. Those aren't my words. Those are the words in Scripture. That's what Scripture demands of us. For Christ's love compels us since we have reached this conclusion. So why does Christ's love compel us? Because if one died for all, then all have died. And he died for all, said that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. We get to do a lot of things. We get to make a lot of our own choices, but this isn't one. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Consider next the message itself and the delivery of that message. What is the gospel? What is the gospel to you? How do you communicate it to other people? And I want to challenge you, if you haven't considered that, I mean, you might have a general idea of that in your mind, but if you haven't penned that down, if you haven't thought about how you would present that to somebody else, take the time to do that this week, today. How would you present the gospel? What is the gospel that we believe is the best news? Paul, in his letter to the Romans, 
is eager, he says, to preach the gospel in Rome. Are you eager to evangelize? Maybe it's, maybe it's the struggle that we have with what is the gospel? How, how do I communicate that with somebody in a way that I don't feel uncomfortable or that I'm going to say the wrong thing? Paul is eager because he believes in the message. He believes in the worth and value of the message. And he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's the power of God for salvation. This is the gospel that he believes, that he's eager to share and evangelize with. And I think here in texts like this, it can make us feel like the weight of evangelism is heavy. That the heaviness of the words begin to strain our hearts and our minds in a way that we feel unsure of what to say or ultimately how to even embrace the full power of God. We feel inadequate sometimes. We use extra words or catchphrases to somehow bring validity to what we've said. But we also have to remember that Paul said this, "...in my speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, evangelism is not about us. Evangelism isn't how comfortable we feel with the message that we have, but instead it is about the spirit and a power that comes from God. There have been times in my life where I've had the privilege of sharing my beliefs with a group of people from a different country. Uh, I did it in Guatemala, in the Dominican Republic. I've done it in a few other places. And here in the U.S., when we're called to share our beliefs or uh, our testimonies or to evangelize, sometimes we get distracted. We get distracted with other things, extra sentences, more words to help get our point across with what we're saying. However, if you're trying to do this through a translator, you quickly realize that uh, more words are not better. You have to start thinking how you're going to say it, how you're going to communicate it so that the translator can stop, pause, and translate that to the group of people that you're talking to. As I, as I began to share my beliefs and my testimony, I found myself, rather than adding words, quickly figuring out how to subtract them, how to slim them down, and how to make them clearer, how to remove confusion from my words. See, when you're trying to give your testimony or you're trying to pray or do any of those, I think one time in Guatemala, uh, was the last time I was there, it, we translated it twice. It went through one translator into Spanish and then another one into, what's the, catchy? Is that what? Yeah. And then another one into catchy. It was a very short prayer, except for it still took 20 minutes. But you have to be succinct for the sake of impact, for the sake of clarity when speaking through a translator. And I think we do, the, we do well to do the same here, to be clearer and more succinct in what we say about the gospel amongst our neighbors and our friends, not feeling overwhelmed by all that we think we have to stay, but instead resting on the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of what God has already said and what God has already done. I think sometimes we keep talking because we might be afraid of what people are going to say. 
were proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to them and were worried about what their rebuttal might be. And so we keep talking. We don't want to fill that space with emptiness. We don't necessarily want a question that we might not be able to answer. And sometimes we just talk too much. In the context of today's social and political discourse, there seems to be little room for tolerance. In an overtly critical landscape of discussion, it can be easy to fall prey to that, to the method of the loudest voice that opposes us. The loudest voice that opposes the message that we see as truth. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus said to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so we can speak with authority through our identity in Christ. If we truly believe in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, if we truly believe that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the living Savior, then we too have been given the authority of Christ here in this world today. However, we tend to see science, our world tends to see science as the final word in general truth. And that can't be the case as we try to evangelize the world around us. We can't look to science as the proof for who Jesus is and what He's done. We need to look to the Word for what the Word says about who Jesus is and what He has done. His Word is truth. Embracing our identity as Christ is paramount. And then also embracing His authority that He's giving you to speak the truth in love. You come here each week, I assume, to worship the Lord together, right? We're here again this Sunday to sing, to pray, to listen to what the Lord has laid upon in the heart of whatever pastor is here to share with God's people. And I think that's right. I think that's good to come here and do that, to be equipped. Ephesians 4 would concur that that's a good thing. That God in His sovereignty established the church to receive instruction and training for maturity. In this time... Each Sunday morning together at the time you spend under the teaching of your small group leaders or the time that you spend in Sunday school with, uh, with people who are trying to help you understand your identity and the authority that we have in Christ, those things are good. And they're right because then when we hear the opinions of this world, when we hear the things that this world is telling us, Scripture says we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and techniques of deceit. And it's not just that. It's not just that we won't be tossed to and fro, but also that we won't use these same tactics to evangelize the lost. We're not called to be clever. We're not called to be deceitful. But instead, as Paul continued in his thought, he said, speaking the truth in love. Evangelism is not an attempt of selfish ambition. Evangelism is not out of vain conceit. Evangelism is not a practice in I'm right and you are wrong. But at the same time, it is to combat the ideologies of the world, the ideologies of the world with the truth of Scripture. It's a fine line, but it's a line nonetheless that we must pay attention to. James entreats us to let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so as we consider the message and its delivery, we must consider the ways of the world, uh, the ways of the word and not the world. Lastly, I want you to consider that what you proclaim is a call to action. What you proclaim as we evangelize, as we share the gospel, and I, I think share is kind of a soft word. Sharing the gospel says, hey, do you want some of my cake? No, I don't really want cake today. I'm on, I'm on a diet. Sharing is, you know, sharing is caring. Well, is it? Sharing is kind of giving something sometimes we don't even, we have plenty of, and it's not really, you can take it or leave it. But sharing the gospel is not a take it or leave it. Not all, also not a, uh, not, it's not a uh, attempt for us to draw people into this place where they're like, okay, yes, I'll go to church because I, you told me that hell is bad. And hell is bad, and because hell is bad, I, I guess I don't want to go to hell. And so this is the, that pragmatic view of faith in America today. But we must be careful not to confuse the love and simplicity with God with a God that lacks judgment. Jesus' call to His people is to repent and to believe. It's to actively turn from a self-centric life towards a cross-centered one. The world says that Christianity is dying. I don't know if you've heard that. I don't know if you have seen those statistics. But I was reading an opinion piece in a news outlet in North Carolina, and the author wrote this, and it hit home for me. Our democracy is being threatened by two great forces, inequality of wealth and the religious right. I think we can offset inequality, but that's another letter. But religion is another matter. Since it is established on faith, there is no answer in science. However, I see the light of day shining through those beliefs. One only has to observe the dwindling church and temple attendance. It's interesting that the author here chose to say he saw the light of day shining through these beliefs. His idea of the light and our idea of the light are two different things. Our idea of the light and the world's idea of the light are two different things, and we need to call people to action. We need to call people not just to our churches, but to a relationship with Jesus. We cannot enter into evangelism with low expectations. I think that's one of the worries that we have as well, that when we go to evangelize, we assume they've already read stuff like that. Somebody's already told them that that Jesus thing is stupid and they should just ignore it. Or maybe they've had a period in their life where they've had a struggle with the church. They've been hurt. And so they already plan to ignore that as best they can. And so sometimes we enter into evangelism with these low expectations that everybody has already heard all the bad stuff. Assuming failure before the words of hope ever leave our lives, ever leave our lips. I think the problem is, is that ultimately that we need to remember that the hope that we have doesn't come from us. The hope that we have doesn't come from our brilliance, our smartness, our human cunning. The hope that we have comes instead from an all-powerful creator 
the all-powerful creator of the cosmos who is infinitely more capable. This past week, we were reading about the stoning of Stephen. And before Stephen went to, uh, went to his death, he had an opportunity to proclaim. And he spent his time proclaiming what the Lord did in the Old Testament. Our Creator is capable to provide for the family of Jacob through the slavery of Joseph. He's capable of providing a home for the Jewish baby Moses in the house of Pharaoh, no less. He's capable of leading his people out of slavery through parted waters. In the New Testament, he's capable to turn water into wine. He's capable to turn loaves and fish into food for thousands, and he's capable to change the hearts and the lives of those he will. It's not up to us. He does call us to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's his work in their life and not ours. And so if the world tells us that Christianity is dying, if the world tells us that things that we have to share are offensive and hurtful, we have to remember what God has done through the ages. We have to remember what God will do in the lives of your neighbors today in the lives of the people that are around you today, your co-workers and your family. And so the first place we need to start is with prayer. It's a place that we will remember who God is and who we are. We need to ask Him to show us the work that He has for us, the work that He has for you as an individual, as a family, and as part of this church. Instead of asking him to join us in our work, we need to instead ask to join his. In Mark eleven twenty four, he says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Prayerful, spirit-led evangelism is expectant. It's expectant that the Lord will do what he wills. He'll change He'll do something impossible and that you'll be there to witness it. Jesus' true followers, we have been given the word that puts us at odds with the world. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have also died to this world and have been raised with him. However, we remain in this world. The difference is, is we don't remain here for no purpose. We remain here with guided steps to free others. As we consider the concept of choice, as we consider the concept of the message and its delivery, as we consider the concept of this call to action, it represents that we must be diligent to remember that a boat functions on the water and not in the water. Not no matter how sensible, how understandable it might seem to let a little bit of water in, eventually that boat's going to sink. 
I think Jesus makes it clear back in John 17 that his desire is that people understand that he nor his followers are of this world. And so my question is, is what if we were more engaged? What if, what if more of us were engaged? What if more of our lives were surrendered fully to Jesus? What if the passion of Jesus was stirred up within us? So what's next? What is the next step that we take for our church? What's the next take the step that we take for you personally? What's the next small step of obedience that you can take towards the life that he has for you in the world that he has placed us in? One of my favorite quotes from Henry Blackaby, it was uh, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, Moving People On to People's Agenda. Uh, Henry Blackaby said this, if Christians around the world were to suddenly renounce their personal agendas, their life goals and their aspirations, and begin responding in radical obedience to everything God showed them, the world would be turned upside down. How do we know that? Because that's what the first century Christians did, and the world is still talking about it. If he's moving in your life today, listen. If God is saying something, something to you, a, a small voice, a prompting, if somebody is encouraging you to go and do something, be, be faithful to listen in obedience to what God is calling you to do. Because he will be faithful in whatever he is calling you to do. So we don't have to fear the words of man when we evangelize and share the hope of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about saying the things that make sense to the ears of people here on this earth. We don't have to say it in a way that's rude, that's deceitful or cunning. But we do have to say it in a way that people will respond and say, what is it that they have? What is it that he's proclaiming? Because it sounds good. Not because we make it good, because it already is good. Listen to Him. Open His Word and let that be the framework. Maybe even the starting place for this time that you have left in the world. Let's pray. Lord, Your Word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. Lord, let our pursuit of you not be just a personal pursuit, but Lord, instead, help us to see that you have called us into this world, not to be of the world, but Lord, to be in the world that you might be glorified by lives that are changed by people who you, whom you love. Lord, we have life in you. John 17 states that, but we also are reminded that in Matthew 28, we're called to give life by your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to proclaim that, not just to share the gospel, but to proclaim the gospel. Lord, let your word be the catalyst of that work. Let it be the truth that we need and that we fall into, that we discover, Lord, that we might come to a place where we are ready we are ready to tell people about Jesus. We're not, we're not ready to just invite them to church. But instead, Lord, we are ready to invite them into a relationship with you, their Savior, our Creator, 
who can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Lord, let us seek you, your word, not the world. Let us have faith through faith that you might be glorified in his proclamation. We pray this in your name. Amen.